Good to be here with you all this morning. Good morning, church. All right, all right. The 9 a.m. is ready to roll. Uh, Name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace. It's a, it's a privilege to serve uh, you and serve with you. We're going to be in the Word today. This is the second to last uh, of our weeks in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 33 and 34 this morning. We'll wrap things up in the last few chapters uh, next week. Uh, but I wanted to start out this morning uh, with the, uh, beginning with a mental exercise. In the words of the, the people that, um, that my people come from, I'm going to make you an offer. You can't refuse, all right? Uh, what if God was to offer you everything you ever dreamed of, that your, your bank account was overflowing, uh, you had the dream career, you had perfect health, like you are LeBron James or Serena, whichever, which, yeah, and uh, the perfect spouse, the, the perfect kids, uh, a legacy in our community, like they're going to name the hospital after you someday. But, but not just for you selfishly, but also for our church, that we could just have a, a successful church that was just, our, our Sunday morning attendance was overflowing, and our programs were successful, and we have bouncy houses coming out of our ears, an amazing band, and then in our community, that we would know, like, drug use was gone. There was no more homelessness. Everyone's just holding hands and sharing candy. Would you accept that offer? Now you, of course, you would be a fool not to, right? But here's the catch. God says you can have all of that, but my presence will not be with you. Would you still take that offer? Essentially, the choices would be you can have everything without God, or you can have God, but potentially nothing else. Now, I know, you know, we're in church you know the right answer, right? But, but what I want to know is what does my heart of hearts say? And I know which way that my heart can twitch toward. That probably tells me a lot about where I'm at and the, 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 the long way I've still got to grow. If you're like me, I grew up knowing, I mean, I grew up in church, right? I knew there was a God. I believed there was a God. But often I struggled to have, like, to even know what it was to have a real relationship with God. I, I wanted to love God. I really did. I just felt like a lot of times I didn't know how to like work up the right emotion or like what that exactly entailed. And I remember as a teenager, we went down to this huge youth conference in Virginia, Liberty University. And, and there we were in this big auditorium. And there's thousands of teenagers worshiping God and their hands are going up and the tears are coming down. The hands went up and the tears came down. And, I, and I'm like, shoot, I don't like I don't feel what they're feeling. And I, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I was like, do I, do we close, I cl- I'd close my eyes, like they were closing my eyes, and I'd peek, and I'd be like, is this, the, is this a verse that we put our hands up? Like, I, how does this work? I, I, and I've lear- I learned over time how to, how to play the right game, right? I knew how to, when to raise my hands and how to grunt appropriately during the messages, right? Amen. Mm, yeah. But inside, I felt hollow. Like, it didn't feel real. And I don't know if you've experienced that. Maybe, maybe you are experiencing that this morning. And as we look at today's passage in Exodus 33 and 34, I think God speaks to this very challenge. How do we see our God? How do we savor that God? How do we, how do we come to desire him more than anything else? And that's my prayer this morning. I just want to pray for a moment here. Father, would your spirit, through your word, right here, right now, in this passage. 
Would you do the work that only you can do? Would you stir in us the hunger that I believe each of us have deep down in our hearts for nothing less than you? May we see you, may we savor you deeper than ever before as a result of our time here together with you. It's in your son's name, I pray. The first thing we're going to see in our passage this morning is the vision of God is reduced among the people of Israel in this point in the story. As we've been journeying through this, we've seen that the, the, the whole point, the purpose of the book of Exodus is that God is rescuing a people for right relationship with himself. He said as much clear back in chapter 6. He said to Israel, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. He says, I've rescued you for a relationship with myself. And we saw at Sinai, after rescue them, God, he, God makes this covenant with the people. He says, if you obey my commands, if you love me as your only true God, then I'll be with you in the promised land. But if you disobey those commands, then I won't be with you. You'll be driven from my presence. Well, we know what happens, right? And last week, we saw Israel cheats right out of the gates on their God in the covenant relationship that they had agreed to enter into with him. They worship the golden calf, and they get the worst news possible here. God says, I'm still going to give you all that you've wanted for 400 years in this new promised land as a people, but I'm not going with you. In today's passage, we see this, this vision of God. And what's interesting is if you were here with us last week, so this is sandwiched between the tabernacle instruction that we walked through last week. And then next week, we'll see the, the tabernacle's construction as they actually do what God had instructed them to do in building it. And right here in the middle of it, in, in Hebrew, they, there, there's this literary form called a, a chiasm. And that's a literary way of saying the most important thing is in the middle. It's like when you eat a good sandwich, the most important thing is in the middle. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Bread's important too, but I digress. Um, what we see... Here, in the middle, is everything hinges on God dwelling with his people in this place. But what we just saw from last week and their covenant breaking, that is at risk. So we pick it up here in, in chapter 33, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I'll send an angel ahead of you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Parasites, Megabites, Gigabites, everybody. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, otherwise I might destroy you on the way. God says, I will still give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. This is, this is God's version of saying, we are still married, but you sleep it on the couch, fool. And so listen, listen to the people's response. Verse 4, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. That's how you know I'm in a perpetual state of mourning. I never have jewelry on, right? So what, what's going on here? Well, more often, when they would take off kind of their ornaments or their jewelry, that was a symbol of, of like that sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes sort of mourning. But also, I think even deeper than that here, what did we see last week? They used their jewelry, their gold, 
the very gold God gave them coming out of the land of Egypt, but they used it to make that golden calf when they were really to use that exclusively for the worship of God and the building of his house. And so here I think God is calling them to mourn, but they are mourning, but also disassociating themselves with that idolatry from chapter 32. And then we go on to see Israel here. They've broken the relationship with their God through disobedience. And the consequence here is they're not going to experience his presence in the land. Now, what does it look like to sleep on the couch in the desert? Look at verse 7. Now, Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting that was outside the tent. So this is this new kind of long-distance relationship they have. And this is not yet the tabernacle. They're going to build that in the next part of the story next week. But there's this, there's this temporary tent, and it's outside of the camp. But remember, God said back in, 20, in, in uh, chapter 25 that the sanctuary, he says, I'm gonna make, you're going to make this, and I'm going to dwell with you. The whole point was it to be in their midst, in the camp. But right now, because of their sin, he's dwelling outside of the camp. Because God said, otherwise, if I'm with you, I am going to destroy you, he said in verse 3. Now, that's not some kind of uncontrolled rage issue. That's righteous indignation and wrath. But this is it's kind of the inverse of, of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Remember, when Adam and Eve were driven away from the holy presence of God. And here, God says, I'm going to remove my holy presence from you. But Moses here, on the behalf of the people, he says, that will not do. And once again, we see Moses interceding for the people. Because of their sin, their vision of God is reduced. But, but we're going to see now, in the next part of the story, the vision of God renewed. So my wife, uh, my now wife and I, Jill, uh, we, we started our relationship long distance. She was uh, in, living in California. I was living up here. Now, there were some real benefits to that, right? Like it forced us to have to get to know each other through conversation conversation because that's all we could do it also helped us in certain areas of temptation if you understand what I'm saying but it would have been it would have been super weird and pretty suspicious if Jill would have said hey let's get married but why don't we stay long distance right you can stay up in Alaska and that's totally cool we'll FaceTime you can occasionally visit but I'm good right I'd be like mm. uh, FaceTime is no substitute for the real thing the intimacy that comes with proximity. Now, some people might look at a marriage offer like that and say, sweet, I get all the tax benefits with all that annoying, I've got to live in the same time zone as them business. But that's not healthy, right? You could tell, you're just using that person. There's not actual intimacy and relationship there. And here we see, similarly, some of God's people might have been like, sweet, this is perfect. We get the promised land. We get all the success. We could have economic stability. We could have military might. We could have political freedom. But without that annoying baggage of relationship with God and all of his rules, we could have the kingdom without having to bother ourselves with the king. But not Moses. Moses steps up to God and he says, God, everything without you is nothing. 
And we see two ways that the, the vision of God can be renewed among the people in this story. The first thing is it's because of a selfless mediator acting on their behalf. Pick it up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now, consider that this nation is your people. He says, God, go with us. And this is God's reply to Moses, verse 14. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So it seems like, sweet, Moses did it. He asked, God says, I will do that, I'll go with you. But what's interesting here is in verse 14, that you, I will go with you, is singular. This is Moses, I will, remember, remember we said last week, he said, Moses, let's wipe this nation out and I'll start over with you. And here once again, he says, Moses, I will go with you, but I'm not going with the stiff necks. But Moses doesn't relent here. He continues on. In this selfless act, at great personal risk to himself, he once again sticks his neck out for the people of Israel. Look at verse 15. If your presence does not go, Moses responded, to him, make, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with me? Mm -mm. Unless you go with us. I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked for you have found favor with me and I know you by name. Moses knows what's going to make them a distinct people among the nations is not their riches, right? They came out of Egypt broke, except for what God gave them. It's not their, their, their military power. They really don't even have an army at this point. And it's certainly not their morality. They're a bunch of complaining idol worshipers. What's going to make them distinct among the nations is going to be the very presence of God himself and that alone. We see two things here. J.D. Greer highlights that, that what Moses shows us as this mediator. First of all, Moses saw God as beautiful, not just useful. He saw Moses as, or God as beautiful, not just useful. And I think often we approach our God simply for what we can get from him. That we approach God as, that we, instead of seeing him and the beauty that he is in himself, we just want the gifts and not the giver. And we say, God, I need this from you. I want that from you. And that's often, I think, why we get mad at God. Because we feel like he's not giving what we really want. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are to ask the Lord for those good gifts. But what we see here from Moses is that the very presence of God himself is the ultimate prize. He did not see his God as just a means to an end, but he saw his God as the end. What about my heart? And the second thing we see here from Moses is that he saw that without God, man, everything else was useless. God knew, or Moses knew, I mean, everything else fades. I wonder if he learned some of that lesson when he was back in Egypt, living as a prince in the palace. He had it all, all that Egypt could have to offer, but we still saw that it was a dead end in itself. It would not satisfy. He says, yeah, it'd be great to have this land flowing with milk and honey, but in itself, that will fade. That will not satisfy us as a people. And maybe right now you're living in some kind of a promised land of your own. Maybe you're the top dog in your career, career field. But one day you will become old, you will become irrelevant, and you will be forgotten. Maybe you have a great family right now. 
But one by one, every person in our family dies and is laid into the grave. You might be beautiful today. You are beautiful today. (laughs) Every single thing on us and in us will start to sag, droop, and ache, no matter how many essential oils we lather on. Aren't you glad you came for this encouraging sermon? I've listened to people who have had everything without their God. And I've listened to people who have had almost nothing but their God. And one of those groups of people was satisfied. Moses goes to bat for Israel and says, God, it's you or nothing. The second thing we see here is is that their vision of God is renewed by hearing the name of God. Moses is not satisfied. He's like a dog on a bone at this point. Verse 18, he says, Moses said, please let me see your glory. Moses asks, he says to God, show me your glory. Now think about this. This is the guy who had just spent 40 days on the top of a mountain with his God. And all he wants is more of that God. Moses, I think here, wants assurance that his God is going to go with them. God, I want to see you. I want to know for sure that you're here and that you will continue to be with us. And don't we want that? Like, God, how am I supposed to, to desire you above all things if I can't even see you? And I think that's a fair thing for us to wrestle with. Like, God, if I could see you, I wouldn't doubt you anymore. God, if I could see you, then I could love you. Like, it's an understandable thing to wrestle with. In the words of a a famous Scandinavian philosopher, show yourself. I'm dying to meet you. Show yourself. It's your turn. Are you the one I've been looking for all of my life? Show yourself, I'm ready to learn. In case I was quoting Frozen, if you didn't, okay. (laughs) It's been a long weekend. God's response to Moses' request, verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Just like the sun, he says, you cannot look directly at me, but you can see the rays of my son's beauty. And here, God grants Moses' request to dwell again with his people through the showing of himself and a vowel renewal. Look at the first two verses of the next chapter. Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first one, the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up, uh, come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. So the people had broken the tablets. I Google imaged this, and this is what popped up on this. I was like, oh, that's it. it's 2023, right? 
he makes these new stone tablets as a symbol, says you have broken. It wasn't that the, the stone itself was broken. It's that they broke their covenant, right? They were faithless to their God. And here he says, I am going to make whole what you have broken. And God, how can you renew the covenant? How can you renew a vision of yourself here? And it's because and only because of who he is. Listen to verses 5 through 7. Some beautiful passage. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Remember at the burning bush when God reveals his name to Moses. He says, I am. I am that I am. It was a reference to his self-existence. That I am, I always will be who I am. But in a lot of ways, that's an incomplete sentence. Or you can think of it like this is kind of God's first name. I am, but I am what? What's the rest of the name? In a lot of ways, this is us here in Exodus 34 getting the full name of God. Finishing the sentence. Hebrew scholars call it the 13 midot, which is, midot is a Hebrew word for mercy. So these are 13 attributes, we just read in these two verses, of the mercy of our God. And it's interesting, this, this little passage here about who God is, is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the rest of the Bible. So that probably indicates this is an important thing to know. And how fascinating here. Do you notice... Moses said, show me your glory. And here we, God lets Moses see his glory, see his goodness. How? Not primarily through visual aid, but by hearing his name. He says, the goodness passed by, by proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord. I think to see God's glory here, we come to understand, is to know who our God is. That means to know it, not just on paper, but to know through experience that our God is a God of mercy, of grace, of patience and love. God had not told this to Israel before. This is the first time we hear this revealed. And isn't it sweet to see that even after their sin and covenant breaking, through that they can come to learn and experience their God in deeper, sweeter, and more, experienced, uh, more experiential ways. Tim Keller, who just passed away this weekend... He said, we don't just need to be told that we are sinners. So we need to be shown that we are sinners. And I've experienced this in my life. Growing up in the church, I was told I was a sinner. And I needed to hear that truth. But much more than that, over the course of 20 years in an addiction to pornography, in addition to many other sins in my life, I was shown without a shadow of a doubt that I am a sinner. I was shown my need for rescue. But similarly, Keller also goes on to say, we don't just need to be told God loves us. We need to hear that news. But he said even deeper, we need to be shown that God loves us. See, like Israel, when, when we are shown that we are covenant-breaking sinners before a God, that can drive us away, and sometimes it does. 
But it can also deepen and sweeten the relationship because now we are ready to be shown how merciful and gracious he is. You know, when I said my vows to Jill almost four years ago, I did not know what I was getting into. (laughs) And I think sometimes that's the only reason we actually say those vows. It's speaking out of ignorance. I didn't know what what for better or for worse really looked like yet. But I imagined 30 years later. For many of you, you don't have to imagine that. You've walked that. Renewing our vows to one another. Holding each other's hands that have been scarred by the wounds of time. Holding on by grace alone. Coming to know the cost of loyal love. And when you say those vows 30 years later, it comes from a sweeter, deeper place. See, God here, the faithful husband, he responds to his wayward wife in overflowing, undeserved generosity. That's grace. Like Israel had torn up the marriage certificate, had smashed the stones, and here is God gluing it back together. When Israel hysterically took the wedding ring off and threw it into the sea, God forged a new one. And he says, my standard in this relationship is a holy, loyal love. And you broke our covenant, and you will continue to break it again and again and again. But even when you are faithless, I will stay faithful. Why? Because that's who I am. That I am the Lord. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. And yes, I'll punish three to four generations, but I am a faithful lover for thousands of generations. The solution to Israel's covenant-breaking, presence-of-God-removing problem was not of how great of an intercessor Moses was. It was not how seriously they repented. And God, this time, we're not going to do it. The, The only hope they had to their problem was found in who their God is. He is merciful, that he is gracious. That was their only bedrock hope. That's only my only hope, too. That's your only hope. Moses' response, which is the only right response, look at verse 8. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. Then, then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor, that's the word for grace, if I have found favor with you, please, Lord, go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people, even though we don't deserve it. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. The people have learned the only way they will get a renewed vision of God is through him and his own grace toward them. But the third, we see as a result of this, the vision of God is radiated. It's radiated. The first way this is radiated is through the worshipful walking of his ways. Look at, uh, down in verse 10 of chapter 34. The Lord responded, uh, look, I'm making a new covenant. So here's the vow renewal. In the presence of all your people, I will perform wonders that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Observe what I've commanded you today. I am going to drive out before you all those ites, 
Be careful not to make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land that you are going to enter. Otherwise, they will become a snare to you. Instead, you must tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and chop up their Asherah poles because the Lord is jealous jealous for his reputation and you are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. And then he goes on, uh, down through verse 28, to restate. It's kind of a Cliff's Notes version of the commands that he had already given. And what we see here is the nations that are surrounded. Remember, Israel saved for the sake of the, the watching nations. And the way that the nations will see who God is, is by the way Israel lives. By the keeping of his commands. How will the world know that God is merciful unless Israel shows mercy to the the foreigner, to the orphan, to the widow, to one another? It's the way that they walk. And God said here, I will drive out your enemies. That's, That's my end. I will be faithful to my end of the covenant. Your end is to trust me and obey me and walk in my ways. But they knew. What, what do we just see in chapter 32? They can't keep the law, and they're going to break it over and over and over again. And we couldn't keep the law either. And God knew that, and that's why he had a better covenant in store. And this points us to how, how do we radiate the vision of God into this world? It's only through the beholding of Jesus. The last thing we'll see here is glow-in-the-dark Moses. Check this out. Verse 29. As Moses descended from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. So his face is shining. The Hebrew was that he had horns sticking out of his face. And that was just a way for them to try to describe these rays of light that were just beaming out of Moses. Moses' face. When Aaron, verse 30, and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. Understandable. But Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went out before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded, and the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak to the Lord. So just from speaking to Yahweh, Moses' face lit up. It's literally shining. And just like on that mountain, the people are afraid of the presence of God radiating from his face. And notice here, Moses' face is unveiled while he's in God's presence. Then I always thought I had read it like, oh, then he puts it over to talk to the people. That's not what it said, is it? What it said was he would take it off while he spoke God's word to the people. Then he would put it back over his face. As he's proclaiming God's word to them, I think this is a way of authenticating what I'm saying to you is coming from that holy God evidenced in my radiating face. But then he would put the veil back over because sinful people can only handle so much of God's holiness in their state. And when God, that's why when God's glory passed by Moses, who was also a sinner, he had to protect Moses. Did you see what he said back in 33? When my glory passes, I will put you in the crevice or the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Moses, I'm going to shield you, protect you for my glory. And it's interesting here, that word cover, when I cover you with my hand, that's the same word as they use for that veil that would cover the ark in the Holy of Holies, protecting the people from the holy 
presence of God. And here, Moses is rocking this little mini veil, uh, protecting others from God's holiness. It'd be like a fun game of peekaboo. It'd freak you out. Glory of God. Ah! Like, don't do that, Moses. As amazing as glow-in-the-dark Moses is, though, brothers and sisters, we have something better. Just like Moses, we have an intercessor who went on our behalf, who wanted nothing else than to know his Father and his glory and to show it here on earth so that God's presence would dwell with us again. Jesus came as the true and better Moses, and we have something much better than glow-in-the-dark Moses. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul riffs on this. He says, since this new way, there's a new covenant that God's made with his people, this new way gives us such confidence we can be very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade the people couldn't look at this glory or they'd freak out and this this glow would eventually fade from Moses's face it didn't sustain this veil he says can be removed only by believing in Christ whenever someone turns to the Lord the veil is taken away we can behold the glory of God without fear in the person of Jesus for the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. See, under the old covenant, when they saw His glory, it resulted in fear and hiding. But in the new covenant, when we see His glory, it says here we can see it and reflect it. It invites freedom, not fear. What changed in this? We can now behold our God through the sunglasses of Jesus Christ. We sing the old, the old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. As we are shown, God, shown, not just told, shown God's love for us. How are we shown God's love? Through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we can approach the throne of grace in boldness today is because, not because of how worthy, we're no more worthy than Israel was. We're no less of a covenant breaker than Israel was. But we can now come boldly and humbly in the blood and name of Jesus Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. It says here, not just that we can behold him, but as we behold Jesus, it said we see and what? We reflect. That as we behold him, we become like him. And just like Moses with Yahweh on the mountain, when we spend time with Jesus, not only in Jesus can we finally see what God looks like with skin on, but we also begin to reflect his glory in the way that we love as he first loved us. Second Corinthians, Paul continues the thought. You see, we don't go around preaching ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. For God who said, let, the, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. See, here he's saying the glory doesn't just shine on us, it shines in and through us. Why? Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus is standing there and he is glowing just like Moses had. But that's not just because the glory of God is shining on Jesus. He is God. It's shining out from Jesus. And the Moses who was standing there with him on that mountain was beholding it and was probably remembering back to that day. And here he says, with Christ in us, we don't just reflect God's glory shining on us. Now as Jesus through the Holy Spirit resides in us, that glory is shining out from us. And it does not fade. It's there permanently. 
Then he says, now we have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. See, the same way that God showed his glory to Moses is the way that we can show his glory to the world by proclaiming the name of our God in the person of Jesus Christ. We take this light out into a dark world and we let it shine. We hide it under a bushel. You got that right. Through our broken, and here's the cool, just like with Israel, through our brokenness. It's through our brokenness that our relationship with God can deepen and and sweeten. Because we have the forgiveness. So when we mess up, God didn't say, all right, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my presence and I'm packing my bag and you're sleeping on the couch. Even when we're faithless, he is faithful. And that's actually our testimony to the world. I'm just in this cracked clay jar. I'm not walking around the world strutting my stuff, telling everybody how awesome I am. I'm, I can now live in open honesty and vulnerability and say, this is how jacked up I am, but this is how great my Savior is. That he saved me, but not just that he saved me, but now in and through me, he's actually giving me the ability to walk as he walked to love as he loved, and I'm slowly, by the grace of God, becoming like my Savior Jesus. And we come to find what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that everything else in this world, everything else, he said, adds up to a pile of dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my all-consuming prize. And we go back to what we said at the beginning. If we could have everything but God or nothing but God, May we, my prayer from my heart, my prayer for your heart, because this is the only place we'll find satisfaction. God, all I want is to see your beauty in the person of Jesus. To find a place where I can say nothing but God is more infinitely valuable than everything but God. That is an offer that we cannot refuse. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I freely confess so often my heart still turns, wants to go back to Egypt, wants, wants to use the very things you've given me, not in worship of you, but really to exalt myself and to try to do my own thing, to take the kingdom without the king. But Lord, I also see that that just time and time again is a chasing of the wind. It's a dead end. It doesn't satisfy. It, does, it just, does, just disappoints. So Father, let's pray. Pray that your spirit that dwells within us would do that slow work of taking our eyes off ourselves and putting them on the face of Jesus. And as we behold him, may you transform us from glory to glory so that we would walk out the love of Jesus shown for us on the death of the, on that cross and the rising to a new life. Father, thank you that through Christ we can behold your glory like Moses and reflect it to a world starving for nothing else than the satisfaction of the bread of life. It's in his beautiful name that we pray and all God's people said.